Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. You're about to listen to a special preview of the Grant Williams podcast featuring my friend and special guest, Peter Zion. Each of Peter's previous visits to the podcast have challenged listeners' long-held convictions as he lays out a really strong case for the kind of seismic political shifts that happen all too rarely, thankfully. But when they do, they reshape the entire global order. This conversation is no different as Peter explains how demographics are about to reshape the entire world as we know it, how global supply chains will be permanently altered, and where the real problems are in Europe. And I'll give you a spoiler alert, they're not where you think they might be. Every episode of the Grant Williams podcast, including The Endgame, Super Terrific Happy Hour, The Narrative Game, This Week in Doom and Shifts Happen, is available to copper and silver tier subscribers at my website, grant-williams.com. Copper tier subscribers get access to all the podcasts, while members of the silver tier get both the podcasts and my monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go Hmm. So, if you enjoy what you hear on the show and you want more high-quality content like it, please make your way over to grant-williams.com and join our exciting community today. And with that, on with the show. Peter, welcome back to the podcast. It's so good to see you always. And uh, you're you're looking sickeningly healthy. (laughs) I do my best. Excellent. Well, listen... um, the subject at hand is the world, as always, <laughs> and the various different ways in which it's conspiring to confuse the hell out of all of us. Um, but the, the time is perfect because you've just published The End of the World is Just the Beginning a couple of months ago. So, so first of all, how's the reception been? Um, because I thought the book was excellent. You very kindly sent me a copy prior to publication, and it really is another tour de force. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. It's 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 been a wild ride from the, the start for this one. What's the best way to phrase this? We started working on this about five years ago after we had a lot of client work that was forward-looking into various supply chain disruptions. So, you know, long before COVID, back in those weird days when the sun shone and everyone was in a good mood. Uh, but it finally came together. And we made the bestseller list, and we're on the bestseller list for audio, too. And it's this silky smooth voice, in case that's attractive. (laughs) Uh, But the reception in the halls of power has actually been even more interesting. Because we deal with questions that governments, as a rule, don't bother with. And now that we're facing simultaneous manufacturing, energy, financial, and agricultural crises, all of a sudden, there's a lot of interest from a lot of places that normally don't give me the time of day uh, to hear about more. So it has been keeping us very, very busy on this side of the pond. And, what, and what's what's been the kind of main point that's interested these folks? Because I, you know, I've always found your work to be simultaneously incredibly accessible and also going into places that you, you don't normally get a chance to hear people discuss. And it, you know, it kind of strikes me that policymakers the world over seem to somehow have been caught flat-footed by a lot of what's going on now, and, and they seem to be catching up. Did you get a sense of that? And if so, where are they trying hardest to catch up? Uh, you definitely hit it there. That's exactly what's going on. Uh, the issue is globalization. 
when the globalized system was created after World War II, the whole idea is we didn't have to worry about these issues. The Americans would look after global security, and that meant global transport would be fine. And if global transport would be fine, then it would be easy to get materials and intermediate products in and out of almost every spot on the planet. And that, that's the world that the West has been living in now since 1945, and that's the world that everyone has been living in since about 1990. So we've had two generations here of not having to worry about the stresses of supply or transport. Well, it's all going away now. So there really isn't any institutional knowledge in almost any part of the world for how to cope with the sort of environment that we're going into, or if you're a student of history, the sort of environment we're going back to. So there's a hunger for just understanding the baseline of how we got to where we are. Uh, and only once you understand that can you realize just how much of the system is vulnerable. And then the menu of options for what to do about it is just massive. Uh, and it's going to be different for every sector, for every country, for every region. And people are only now starting to come to grips with the size of the problem, uh, much less a solution. Throughout your books, you've, you've chronicled beautifully how we did get here. But, but when you have these conversations, can you kind of, in a nutshell, sum that up for us, how, how we did get there, which, is, which I, I think involves summarizing your entire written canon. But then it'll give us some kind of background that we can frame what happens from here, I think. Sure. Globalization was never about economics. Globalization was a, was a bribe. It was a security plan. Uh, when the Americans were emerging from World War II, we realized that we lacked the military capacity to even theoretically contain the Soviets without a whole lot of help. And that meant we needed help from countries that were a lot closer uh, and that were a lot more likely to bleed if there was a conflict. And so they had to be induced to side with us versus the Soviets. Globalization was the bribe. We would ensure that anyone's commerce could go anywhere at any time. And in exchange, America got the right to design everyone's security policies. And this is the foundation of NATO. This is the foundation of the alliances in the Pacific. This is everything that brought us to the world that we know that is relatively wealthy and relatively peaceable. But it was a bribe. The Americans did not internationalize their economy because then it would have just been another imperial overreach. So when the Americans started backing away from this system at the end of the Cold War, uh, all of a sudden, you had this thriving international market, but there was no one holding up the ceiling anymore. And 30 years on, the ceiling is collapsing. It's collapsing in China. It's collapsing in Ukraine and Russia. We're seeing breakdowns of the supply chains. And that's before you consider uh, the demographic implosion, which passed the point of no return, what, 25 years ago now? Uh, so the, the very consumption model that we've always had assumes that there's just a large number of young workers and consumers in their 20s and their 30s. And that has not been true for quite some time. Demographic aging has gone so far that it's not that we're running out of children. In a lot of the world, that happened 30 years ago. Now we're running out of working age adults. And we don't even have an economic model that could theoretically cope with that. It's certainly not globalization, which is all about consumption. It's interesting. You, you take that you take the, the the period where the U.S. pulled away back to the end of the Cold War, which which I find really interesting because um, it seems like this has all happened very quickly, and a lot of people have kind of put it down to the last eight years of foreign policy in terms of stepping back. But but talk a little bit about 
about how the, the pullback began and the, the kind of early signs of it post-Cold War? So I think that'll catch a lot of people by surprise. Well, the pull-down actually began with Reagan. There were some initial arms control deals that were done with the Soviets at the very tail end of the right. Reagan administration that he left it to the George Herbert Walker Bush administration to operationalize. And so we saw total force deployments in Europe drop by more than half in a very short period of time in the early 1990s. Uh, and then they continued to trend down for over a decade. Uh, over the course of the following 15 years, we saw our deployments outside of Germany, Korea, and Japan almost go to zero. And then we've seen some further reductions in those three core areas uh, in the 10 years since. The one exception, the one place that we put more troops, of course, was in the uh, Middle Eastern theater, specifically Iraq and Afghanistan. But as we all know, troops there are now under 1,000 total across the entire theater. Uh, so we actually, at the start of the Ukraine war, had fewer troops stationed abroad than since any time or at any time since uh, Reconstruction in the late 1800s. We have never been this withdrawn. It's amazing, you know, I, when you read and hear stuff like that, it, it just doesn't seem to fit with the kind of narrative that's been maintained over all these years. The, the, the acceleration that, that seems to have happened in the last kind of couple of years, um, is that because of the rise of China? Is that coincidental? I mean, let, let's, let's go back to prior to the Ukraine invasion, because we'll, we'll get onto that shortly. But... but that acceleration, has that just been optics or has there been a factor that China has become more belligerent, has become more of a visible problem? And so the, the acceleration that we've seen is perhaps down to realisation of the situation we're in given China's rise. Well, with the exception of Japan and Korea, which are very important exceptions, the United States has not had a significant military footprint in the East Asian theatre since the Cold War. Uh, the biggest deployments, of course, were the Vietnam, Vietnam War, which eventually went to zero well before the Chinese rise, as well as the Philippines, which we closed out, I believe, in 1992 is when Subic was closed. Subic, yeah. So in terms of an American military footprint in East Asia, it's almost exclusively naval. And that, that really hasn't changed. And, you know, one of the beauties of naval deployments are you can move them. It's not like uh, the Army where you have to have a fixed point of placement. The Navy is mobile by definition. Uh, it's more to do with the changing nature of American power and American culture. Uh, with the Cold War over, Americans were done for a while. So we saw a steady redeployment. And since there were, was never an economic rationale for that deployment from our point of view, it was easy to make the case. I'd say a bigger factor, as opposed to China, would have been the rise of the shale revolution. First with natural gas around 2004, and then moving into the oil space around 2008 to 2009. That pushed the United States from a position where it did care at least tangentially about certain aspects of the international market because it was the world's oil importer, world's largest oil importer. But by the time we got to 2017, 2018, we were a net exporter of every sort of energy that there was. And most of that export stayed in the Western Hemisphere. Mexico became our single largest export market for energy. And then we swapped crude with the, the Canadians uh, because our refineries are tooled differently. Uh, the shale revolution allowed the United States to operationalize a lot of what was kind of in its cultural heart already, that we don't like to remain involved in an area with boots on the ground any longer than is necessary. 
war on terror took on a life of its own, but even that closed after, I'm using air quotes here, only 20 years, which if you look at the imperial expansions of the past, is practically heartbreaking. The full conversation is available to subscribers to the copper and silver tiers of my website, grant-williams.com. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.